Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm one of your guest hosts this week, Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. For the past six episodes, Richard and Molly asked, is someone trying to institute a new world order? And have they already succeeded? This week, Greg and I are filling in to explore the history of two influential secret societies. They may not be part of the new world order, but they could still be shaping the world around you. Today, we're taking a deep dive into Yale's infamous elite student club, the Skull and Bones. Previous members include influential figures in the world of business, finance, and politics, like Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, Secretary of State John Kerry, and President George W. Bush. We'll look at the ways that Bonesmen have infiltrated the U.S. government, their connections to the Nazi party, and the allegations that they're engaged in eugenics experiments. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Skull and Bones are unique from more conventional secret societies. The rest of these groups, your Illuminatis, your Freemasons, your Triads, are forced to operate in the shadows because of their high-stakes, supposedly world-altering agendas. But the skull and bones, on the surface, they're just a group of college kids, basically a fraternity. So where do these accusations of attempted world domination come from? It has more to do with what Bonesmen do after they leave Yale. Bonesmen have infiltrated the financial sector, mass media, higher education, public policy think tanks, business industry, and all three branches of the U.S. government. When you examine the roster of Skull and Bones, you'll find that members come from some of the oldest, wealthiest families in the nation and go on to fill some of the most prominent public roles of power. As Dr. Anthony C. Sutton, author of America's Secret Establishment, questioned, they swear to take care of each other's interests, and they do it. That in the normal conduct of life is probably okay, but when one of them becomes the President of the United States, it's time to ask questions. What have you sworn to do for your brothers? If the members of the Skull and Bones are trying to implement some kind of vast conspiracy, they're certainly well-placed to do so. 
they could ostensibly identify an issue in the business sector, devise a piece of public policy legislation, lobby it through the government, then spin their own reporting through the news media. Through the chain of bonesmen, every area could be connected. But is it all just coincidence? Members insist that if bonesmen are well-positioned in the world after graduation, it simply means that they inducted the best candidates Yale had to offer, men who were already destined for greatness. Then why keep everything shrouded in secrecy? Bonesmen won't publicly acknowledge their membership, which is lifelong, and are supposed to leave the room if someone so much as mentions the group. They won't reveal to anyone what goes on in their headquarters, and non-members are strictly forbidden from entering their tomb. And some people believe that their impenetrable iron curtain is a safety measure to protect their true goals from public knowledge. However, that portion of the Bones mythos might actually be explained by Yale's own history. Today, there are several secret societies at Yale, though Skull and Bones is the oldest and arguably the most storied. All of these societies emerged out of the school's long history of organized elitism and rigid culture of classism. In 1701, Yale College was the third university established in the United States. It was initially founded as a ministerial school tasked with training ministers for the state of Connecticut, who would then serve as the moral leaders of their communities. At the time, the only other ministerial school in New England was Harvard. But a group of Puritan leaders felt that the education style there was becoming too modern and straying too far from the orthodoxy. So they founded Yale as a more traditional, conservative institution. Yale men were therefore expected to follow strict guidelines of conduct. They were forbidden from leaving their dorm rooms without proper attire, from speaking to a superior without first being spoken to, from running in the quad, the list goes on and on. The students were also bound by a rigid social hierarchy. As Alexandra Robbins detailed in her book on the Skull and Bones, Secrets of the Tomb, students were ranked by their social cash, not their academic performance. She explained, students at the top of the class had fathers who held high civil office. At the bottom were sons of farmers, merchants, mariners, and artisans. This ranking determined every aspect of a student's life at Yale, from where they sat in class to where they were housed and what order they were announced at graduation. It was predetermined before a student stepped foot on campus and was nearly impossible to improve. Beyond that, all freshmen were seen as the lowest of the low, with the most rules to follow. They couldn't wear hats or carry canes, both status symbols at the time. They couldn't address senior students by any kind of familiar name, only as Sir. This rigid caste system encouraged rampant hazing on campus, referred to as trimming. The upperclassmen believed it was their duty to improve the lowly freshmen and mold them into proper Yale men. Any freshman found in violation of any rule could be trimmed by an upperclassman in any manner that they deemed fit. And the university approved of trimming until the mid-1800s, seeing it as an effective method of enforcing their strict code of conduct. One administrator said that 
If trimming was abolished, the new freshmen would subject the higher classes to constant scurrility, lessen their manhood and dignity, reduce all to an equal rudeness, and render Yale a mere common school. Of course, as with any hazing practice, this power was often abused. In one story, a freshman was reportedly dragged from his dorm and out into the woods, stripped naked, covered in paint, and forced to have his head shaved. In this culture of fear and systemic oppression, low-ranking students looked for opportunities to distinguish themselves academically, thereby engendering some loyalty, respect, and ideally protection from the upperclassmen. In the late 1700s, students found these opportunities in literary societies. These open groups held weekly meetings. Students gave speeches, recited poems, performed plays, and debated topics of the day. But over time, the campus was overrun by these societies. Nearly every student was a member of at least one. They lost any feeling of specialness. If anyone could join, what was the point? So some of the groups went underground, forming the first secret societies at Yale. By limiting the membership, it gave students a place to establish themselves as even farther above Yale's elite students, the elite of the elite. These secret clubs were undoubtedly inspired by other real secret societies of the era. Groups like the Illuminati and Freemasons were well known in the United States. But as we said earlier, the secret nature of these groups was born out of necessity to their cause. This wasn't the case at all at Yale. Their secrecy was motivated by elitism. Sociologist George Simmel wrote extensively about secret keeping and secret societies. He found that secrets tap into a primal human need for information. If something is being kept a secret, it subconsciously indicates to us that the information is valuable. Therefore, the secret keepers are in possession of something worthy of coveting. Yale's secret societies, which were really no more than study groups with a secret handshake, manufactured value by operating in secret. The secret societies quickly overtook all other groups in prestige, simply by closing their doors and shuttering their blinds. Being in on the secret became the new indicator of your social status. But in 1826, public opinion of secret societies in America dramatically turned with the kidnapping and alleged murder of a man named William Morgan. He threatened to expose the rituals and secrets of the Freemasons in a book after he was denied entry at his local Masonic Lodge. Soon after the announcement, he vanished. The public assumed that members of the Freemasons killed Morgan to keep him quiet. As the story gained traction, Morgan's publisher decided to go ahead with the release of the book, Exposing the Mason's Secrets. The best-selling book, combined with Morgan's death, sparked a widespread anti-Masonic sentiment. Lodges all over New England were shuttered. In 1828, the Anti-Masonic Party was founded as the first single-issue third-party political faction in the U.S. By 1832, this outrage trickled down to the collegiate level. The Yale administration singled out the most popular and most exclusive secret society on campus, Phi Beta Kappa. They forced PBK to reveal their membership lists, their ritual practices, and the meanings behind their symbols. 
like the unmasking of the great and powerful Oz, when the mystery behind the group was stripped away, so was their prestige. For several years, PBK disappeared entirely from Yale's campus. And in this vacuum, the Skull and Bone Society was born. In short order, it became the most influential organization on campus. There are two main tenets of the Skull and Bone Society that draw our continued fascination. The first is the posterity of the group and the undeniable impact its alumni have had on American society. Former members include Henry Luce, co-founder of magazine conglomerate Time, Inc., McGeorge Bundy, national security advisor to JFK and LBJ, and William Howard Taft, the 27th president of the United States and 10th chief justice of the Supreme Court. His father, Alfonso Taft, was in the founding class of Skull and Bones. He served as Ulysses S. Grant's attorney general and secretary of war. And even if you don't subscribe to the more conspiratorial view about the impact of Bones on the world, you can't deny the impact of Bones at home on Yale's campus. 80% of Yale professors from 1865 to 1916 were Bonesmen. From 1862 to 1910, every university treasurer but five belonged to Skull and Bones. So was every university secretary from 1869 to 1921. The prestige of the society's alumni leads us to the second point of fascination, the secrecy. It begs the question of their intentions and the nature of their strict confidentiality. What grand plans are they keeping from the rest of us? Did they start their club to gain dominance and control of Yale? Then eventually, the fate of humanity. One of the reasons the Skull and Bone Society's true intentions are debated is the fact that there are a few different origin stories for the group. Some people allege that it started as an academic club organized by students who were dissatisfied with the quality of Yale's professors at the time. This theory gives credence to the idea that the Bonesmen wanted to influence the future direction of Yale College. They started the society, agreed on plans for their alma mater, then slowly infiltrated the staff and administration until they held enough power to implement their vision. If this was their mission, they seem to have succeeded throughout the years. In October of 1873, 40 years after the club's founding, a newspaper called The Iconoclast published its first and only issue, featuring an article specifically calling out the influence of the skull and bones on Yale. The authors claimed that they resorted to founding their own newspaper to publish the article because every other publication was too scared to speak out about the bones. It read, they have obtained control of Yale. Its business is performed by them. Money paid to the college must pass into their hands and be subject to their will. Year by year, the deadly evil is growing. It grasps the college press and endeavors to rule it all. It does not deign to show its credentials, but clutches at power with the silence of conscious guilt. Daniel Coit Gilman was a Bonesman in 1852, 20 years into the club's history. He was a staunch advocate for public education, serving as both head librarian at Yale and later as the president of Johns Hopkins University. 
Allegedly, Gilman was instrumental in the passage of the Morrill Land Grant Acts, which allows for the acquisition of public lands for educational purposes. Through the passage of this bill, Yale's campus nearly doubled in size, and the Bonesmen never let the administration forget who they had to thank for that. But another theory connects the rise of Skull and Bones with the unmasking of another secret society on campus, Phi Beta Kappa. When anti-Masonic sentiment led to the unmasking of a single secret group, one student, William H. Russell, doubled down, recruited 14 friends, and started another, even more exclusive and covert club. If this is actually how Skull and Bones started in 1832, then the secrecy feels slightly more justified. First, it was an extension of a pre-existing practice. If Bones was really trying to replace PBK, it makes sense that they would also be a secret society. Second, because PBK was forcibly unmasked by the Yale administration, it gave the Bonesmen even more reason to conduct their business underground, or else they'd face the same fate. Like the Freemasons, the very nature of their actions put them in danger. The Bonesmen were so protective of their group, they wouldn't admit their membership to any non-member, ever. They wouldn't even say the words skull and bones. If someone else mentioned the club or secret societies in general, it said they were expected to excuse themselves from the conversation and leave the room. Bonesmen also weren't supposed to enter the tomb, their headquarters, within sight of non-members. If there were witnesses present, Alexandra Robbins explained, the society's members refrain from making eye contact with each other and with the spectators and silently step in a quick single file, 20 paces apart, in front of the building. When William H. Russell partnered with Alfonso Taft and first founded the group, they initially called it the Eulogian Club, after a fictional patron goddess, Eulogia, the so-called goddess of eloquence. After a year, they adopted the moniker Skull and Bones, but continued the reverence of Eulogia. The name Skull and Bones is supposedly inspired by two German phrases that translate to who was the fool, who the wise man, beggar, or king, and whether poor or rich, all are equal in death. The meaning is, essentially, that death is the great equalizer and that a man's worth can only be judged by what he does in life. In addition to this somewhat existentialist motto, the group adopted as its symbol a skull and two crossed bones. It all feels sinister, doesn't it? A constant reminder, death is coming. Well, one of the alternate names for the society is the Brotherhood of Death. And it's this combination of intense secrecy and clear obsession with morality that makes people fearful of what this group is all about. Returning to sociologist George Simmel, it's human nature to fill in the blanks when we don't know all the information about someone or something. In our biological need to understand the world and assign meaning to things, we make assumptions in the absence of clear-cut facts. MIT professor Gary T. Marks explained in his analysis of Simmel, when faced with a lack of information about another, an individual may compensate by supplying what is imagined to be true. Incomplete knowledge of others may require some form of confidence. 
So if all we know about a secret group is that they seem obsessed with death and death iconography, we probably won't make the best assumptions about them. But that's likely how the members of the Skull and Bones want it. As we established earlier, a secret is only as powerful as we perceive it to be. So if what we imagine about Skull and Bones is that they're a death cult hell-bent on world domination, what could be more powerful than that? But this fascination has come at a cost for the Bonesmen. In the 187 years since its founding, they've built up such a powerful mythos around their practices, it's inspired several sets of prying eyes. In 2002, journalist Alexander Robbins published Secrets of the Tomb, Skull and Bones, The Ivy League, and The Hidden Paths of Power. In it, she reveals several of the Skull and Bones' most closely guarded secrets. Some of them can be seen as downright silly. Every Bonesman assumes a tomb name, which is never revealed to a non-member. Titles like Magog, Little Devil, and Boaz. Pulitzer Prize winner Archibald McLeish went by Gigadibs. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart chose Crapo. Conservative author and founder of the National Review, William F. Buckley, Cheevy. Some were legacy titles, passed down from father to son. Allegedly, both Prescott and George H.W. Bush went by bare bones. George W. Bush bucked tradition, but also couldn't decide on a new name, so everyone just called him temporary. Bonesmen are often said to operate in a different time zone, called Skull and Bones Time, five minutes ahead of the rest of the world. 8 p.m. SBT is 7.55 p.m. Barbarian Time. A member explained to Robbins, it was to encourage you to think that being in the building was so different from the outside world that you'd let your guard down. And the grandfather clock in the inner temple, where meetings and ceremonies are held, is always set to 8 p.m. When the bonesmen meet, they should lose themselves inside the tomb. The concept of time should become irrelevant. The tomb itself is a source of fascination. A two-story structure with only a few small windows, the panes made of dark glass. The heavy steel door is secured with three padlocks that have to be unlocked in the right way or else an alarm goes off inside. It was built to look like a mausoleum from the outside, and it casts an imposing shadow, speaking to the great secrets contained within. But Robin's sources described it as more like a Victorian pack rat's dorm room, a place that used to be nice, but now looks like both Miss Havisham and Bluto lived in. She wrote, dozens of skeletons and skulls, human and animal, dangle from the walls, on which German and Latin phrases have been chiseled. Among moose heads, sconces, medieval armor, antlers, boating flags, manuscripts, statuettes of Demosthenes, and a pair of boots that one member wore throughout his active duty with American forces in France during World War II. But among the junk, specters of death are everywhere. Every plate, cup, and memo is stamped with the skull and crossbones insignia. Actual skeletons are displayed in cases and hung from the ceiling, allegedly including the stolen bones of Madame de Pompadour, the mistress of King Louis XV, as well as the skull of Apache warrior Geronimo. 
In fact, Geronimo's descendants even filed a lawsuit against the secret society for fear their ancestor's soul wouldn't be able to rest within the tomb. While the Bonesman's fixation on death might seem excessively morbid, it's important to remember the major wars that occurred in the first hundred years of the Skull and Bones founding. Many of the early Bonesmen fought and died in the Civil War, World War I, and World War II. Therefore, this death obsession and the constant reminders that death is the great equalizer actually make sense. They'd seen young men perish in their prime all around them. As one engraving in the tomb reads, don't you realize that all good men die? Alexander Robbins is only the latest person to publicly expose the Bonesmen. Journalist Ron Rosenbaum published an article in Esquire in 1977 titled, The Last Secrets of Skull and Bones. He took a far less sympathetic view of the organization. His obsession with the group was first peaked in his sophomore year at Yale. He believes to his core that there's just something not right about the Skull and Bones Society. He believes that their tomb holds dark and violent secrets. He explained that when he was a student. If one could climb to the tower of Weir Hall, the odd castle that overlooks the Bones courtyard, one could hear strange cries and moans coming from the bowels of the tomb as the 15 newly initiated members were put through what sounded like a harrowing ordeal. One account from 1968 alleges that each initiate is physically beaten. Next, he is stripped and made to engage in some form of naked wrestling, followed by a coffin ritual. Along with skeletons, skulls, and crossbones, coffins are an enduring piece of Bones mythology. Rosenbaum related another account from 1940. New man placed in coffin, carried into central part of building, new man chanted over, and reborn into society. This tracks with what we know about Skull and Bones. They take on new names, they live in a new time zone, they leave their former life and are resurrected as Bones to live an all-new life. Some accounts allege that initiates are also forced to masturbate in their coffins as part of their rebirth, though this is vehemently denied by Bonesmen themselves. Rosenbaum's 1977 article was a bit of a softball, a collection of snippets and gossip, but nothing that earth-shattering. He wrote that he honestly didn't understand what all the fuss was about. It wasn't until after the piece was published that rumors started floating Rosenbaum's way. Whispers about how the tendrils of the group had wound their way into all three branches of the federal government. A friend warned him that he should withdraw all the money from his bank account because the financial institution was run by bonesmen who would want to retaliate. The friend compared the bonesmen to the mafia. Now that he'd published, Rosenbaum realized there was much, much more to the story. So he continued to research on the side. And in the spring of 2001, nearly 25 years after his initial article, a source approached him about one of the biggest bone secrets of all, their initiation rites. The source allegedly knew of a hidden spot on campus that gave a direct view of the Skull and Bones tomb courtyard. He offered Rosenbaum access to observe that year's ceremony. Not only did Rosenbaum watch the initiation ritual, 
he videotaped the whole thing. Up next, the secrets of the skull and bones are revealed and replayed on the nightly news. The world is full of con men, fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers, global companies with unexpected motives, and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers, join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru, the doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs, and the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, back to the story. From 1977 to 2001, journalist Ron Rosenbaum chased the lead of the Skull and Bone Society. The group appeared to be a college fraternity on the surface, but was accused of manipulating the government and the economy through backroom deals, built on the relationships formed in the ever-impenetrable tomb. On April 14, 2001, Rosenbaum got a tip about how to watch the Bones initiation ceremony. He would be granted access to witness just what exactly could bind these wealthy and powerful men together in such an unbreakable way. A ceremony that CEOs, presidents, and senators had all supposedly taken part in. After decades of trying to unmask the Bonesmen, he had finally found the exclusive that had evaded him. That night, Rosenbaum perched in a tower on Yale's campus that overlooked the Skull and Bones tomb courtyard and recorded the ordeal using a night vision camera. He saw before him the source of the wailing moans that so many others had heard before come from the Skull and Bones initiates. One of the Bones men wore a suit and a plastic George W. Bush mask. Fake Bush bellowed, 
I'm gonna ream you like I reamed Al Gore. Another commanded, lick my bumhole, neophyte. Rosenbaum described the finale of the ceremony, writing, they were forced face to face with a shocking tableau. A guy holding what seemed like a butcher knife, wearing a kind of animal skin barbarian look, stood over what seemed to be a woman covered in fake blood and not much else. The neophyte then approached a skull a few feet away from the knife wielder and victim tableau. The neophyte knelt and kissed the skull, at which point the guy with the knife knelt and pretended to cut the throat of the prone figure. When Rosenbaum's expose broke, it was a bombshell, retold in news outlets everywhere. They showed clips from the tape as Rosenbaum filled in the gaps with a play-by-play. The story seemed to confirm what many had suspected about Skull and Bones for decades. It was a juvenile boys' club, reveling in nothing more than childish, vulgar, ooga-booga games. Rosenbaum pulled back the curtain on the great and powerful Bones and revealed what appeared to be nothing more than a little man playing at greatness. Anyone who had been previously rejected by Skull and Bones could now rejoice. There was nothing to be coveted in this experience. Rosenbaum triumphantly declared, I am the Ahab of Skull and Bones, pursuing the white whale, or white male, Leviathan to the utmost depths. Except there might be more to the story. In her book, Secrets of the Tomb, Alexandra Robbins thinks that the ceremony Rosenbaum witnessed was actually an elaborate hoax. Either the bonesman in the courtyard knew that he would be watching and therefore put on a show, or perhaps even arranged for the secret viewing in the first place. Rosenbaum disputed this criticism and denies that he was pranked. But there are a few points to consider in Robin's favor. First, the Skull and Bones tomb is literally an impenetrable fortress. Why would they perform such a secret ceremony outside in the courtyard when they're guaranteed privacy simply by remaining indoors? More importantly, we have to consider what the point of an initiation ceremony is to engender loyalty and belonging. A brutal hazing ritual without any context could have the opposite effect. Abusing new members gives them no incentive to keep the club's secrets. Therefore, it seems likely that what Rosenbaum witnessed was a hoax. Instead, Robbins detailed an entirely different initiation ritual in her book, one that draws new members in with mysticism, absurdity, and a promise of absolute secrecy without any violence. Her account is based on society documents she's collected in research for her book and statements made to her by former bonesmen. First, you're led to the door of the Skull and Bones tomb. The front door cracks open and a bag or hood is placed over your head as you're whisked inside. You're blind in total darkness as a Skull and Bones member escorts you to the first room. There, someone whips the bag off your head, but it's pitch black. The only light comes from the smoldering ends of several cigarettes that each member languidly waves through the air. One of the members tells you what's about to happen. You're about to die and be reborn. Before you can really process the words, your head is once again covered by the bag, and you're once again plunged in darkness. A guide leads you on a blind tour around the tomb, 
taking you room by room, upstairs and downstairs, whispering pieces of lore and half-truths along the way. They place your hand on something hard, a piece of wood, and cackle. Feel that? That's the coffin we're going to bury you in. The tour is a whirlwind, until you're completely dizzy and lost in the darkness. Then suddenly, your escort stops. He's brought you to the door of the inner temple. Four other members, the Shakers, flank you, two on either side, though you still can't see anything through the bag on your head. On the other side of the door, someone asks your name. Before you can reply, the Shakers shout it for you. Then the door to the inner temple flies open. The hood is removed, and the Shakers shove you inside. You see dozens of masked and robed bonesmen. They're cheering and hollering at the top of their lungs. The Shakers grab your arms and carry you forward to a table in the middle of the room. They press you toward the tabletop where an oath of secrecy is written on a card. The room chants, read, read, read. Before you can even finish the first sentence, the Shakers grab you again and thrust you to another part of the room, forcing you to kneel in front of a carved bust of Eulogia. The room chants, Eulogia, Eulogia, Eulogia. Then back to the oath on the table, read, read, read. Then to another corner of the room, where the Shakers make you kneel in front of a portrait of a beautiful woman. They bellow. Canubial bliss, canubial bliss, canubial bliss. The Shakers next rush you before the most ornately robed member in the room, known as Uncle Toby. The entire room falls silent in reverence. Uncle Toby intones, Uncle Toby, Philomagi, Fimilarico, Carnix, Carnicesi, Carnixo, McPherson, O'Fannell. The room commands, say it, say it. Say it. Another moment of complete silence as you try to form words before you're overruled. The room cries out, he can't, he can't, he can't. Then they haul you back to the table. For the first time, you realize that sitting next to the oath card is a skull filled with red liquid. The room commands, drink it, drink it, drink it. You hold your nose and drain the skull, which thankfully is filled with red Kool-Aid and not blood. As soon as you swallow, the Shakers bring you to kneel before a man dressed as Don Quixote, wielding a broadsword. He raises it up in the air as if he might chop off your head there on the spot. The crowd falls silent, waiting for the blade to drop, waiting for you to die. But Don Quixote ceremoniously taps you on the left shoulder and declares, By order of our order, I dub thee Knight of Eulogia. The bell chimes, three rings, then two, then two more, signifying the sacred number of the order, 322, the birth year of the goddess Eulogia. The entire room shouts, Bones. For a moment, you're allowed to catch your breath before the Shakers scoop you back up again and thrust you back outside the doors of the inner temple, slamming them shut behind them. You're now a member of the Skull and Bones Society. One Bonesman described the initiation rite as something out of a Harry Potter novel. 
He explained, you're dizzy and unsure, but it is never dangerous. Once each of the 15 new initiates have been sworn in in the inner temple, the entire group reassembles with the rest of the members present. In addition to the outgoing senior class, several alumni, called patriarchs, will also attend to share their own stories of Bones' lore and welcome the new class. Each class tries to enlist the most prestigious alumni they can. George H.W. Bush was apparently a frequent guest before he was elected president. New initiates get another tour of the tomb, this time without a blindfold, and are treated to a party that lasts long into the night. If Robin's account is accurate, it's certainly tamer than naked wrestling and ejaculating in coffins. It's a wholly unique shared experience that ultimately binds members together, which at the end of the day is the true point of the secret society, connection. By the end of their senior year, each class of Bonesmen is entirely galvanized. They form lifelong friendships based on shared experiences that they likely won't find in any other place. After graduation, each member is provided access to the network of Bonesmen who came before him. With alumni in all manner of business, government, and media conglomerates, it's a powerful tool to get your foot in the door at your first job. But it's that same vast network that spawns a dark aura around the Skull and Bone Society. When you take a closer look at the membership roster, you realize just the kind of pedigree and reach the organization has. When one Bonesman calls on another for a favor, it could be to broker a billion-dollar deal. It could be to lobby a bill to fellow congressmen. It could be to endorse a presidential candidate. Percy Rockefeller, Standard Oil Company, Bonesman. Russell Wheel Davenport, Fortune Magazine, Bonesman. Pierre J., Chairman of the New York Federal Reserve, Bonesman. William Howard Taft, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Presidents of the United States, Bonesman. With so many men connected by such deeply ingrained loyalties, it begs the question, what comes first, God, country, or Bones? Dr. Anthony C. Sutton, author of America's Secret Establishment, said, I don't know any member of Skull and Bones who's made any great contribution to literature, to art, to sociology, to anything we might do to help the world progress and be happier. They exist for war and destruction and greed and personal acquisition and finance. They don't exist to better the lot of their fellow man. They exist to better the lot of their own group. Some dismiss the Skull and Bones as an ordinary college fraternity, but it's undeniable that members have shaped our world. The club has produced CEOs, politicians, and some of the most influential leaders in American history. And as earlier episodes have demonstrated, the ties that bind the rich and the powerful can be just as dangerous as a formal New World Order. Bonesmen allegedly use tactics like Hegelian dialectics, corporate acquisitions and mergers, and propaganda. Sound familiar? It's no surprise that the Skull and Bones have been accused of trying to take over the world. And considering their wealth and reach, they may be poised to do just that. 
One of the most pervasive theories about the Skull and Bone Society is that they're trying to influence global politics through strategically placed members, or bonesmen. Because there's no doubt that once they leave the tomb, the all-male members of Skull and Bones hold elite jobs in prominent roles of power. If they're involved in pushing a massive conspiracy, they're certainly well-placed to do so. Zoom in on any Skull and Bones class, you'll see Bonesmen pulling other Bonesmen up into their ranks. But perhaps the most quintessential example of the power of the tomb is George H.W. Bush. After graduating from Yale in 1948, Bush went to work in an oil company, Dresser Industries, run by Bonesman Neil Mallon. In 1950, he set out on his own venture, founding the Bush Overby Oil Development Company. His father and uncle, both Bonesmen, invested in the company, as did Bonesman Lud Ashley. In the early 1960s, Bush sold his oil company for a hefty profit and embarked on a career in politics. Bonesman William F. Buckley of the National Review invited him to participate in a Republican symposium, jump-starting his political life. And Bonesmen were there on his way to the White House. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart swore Bush in as the director of the CIA in 1976 and as vice president to Ronald Reagan in both 1981 and 1985. When Bush assumed the presidency in 1989, he stacked his appointments with as many bonesmen as possible. He appointed Edwin Dale Jr. to director of external affairs in the Office of Management and Budget. Barry Zorthian went to the Board for International Broadcasting. He tried to nominate John Towers to Secretary of Defense, but was ultimately bogged down in the confirmation process. Ambassadors, judges, aides, you name it. Bush knew a bonesman for every role. And when push came to shove, they all knew who to thank for their position. They knew where their loyalties lay. When it was his son's turn in the White House, the bonesmen fell in line. Dudley Taft, the grandson of Bonesman and President William H. Taft, donated $25,000 to George W. Bush's campaign fund. William Frederick Smith hosted a $100,000 fundraiser. Stephen Adams donated $1 million worth of billboard advertising in key swing states. He paid them back in kind with appointments. Coincidentally, in the 2004 presidential race, both candidates, George W. Bush and John Kerry, were bonesmen. And the Skull and Bone Society supported them both on their path to the White House. This could be seen as further evidence that the club has a larger agenda at stake. The new world order is bigger than liberal and conservative. Republican and Democrat don't matter, just bones. Yale professor Dr. Anthony Sutton has written extensively about the Skull and Bone Society. In his book, America's Secret Establishment, he explains that to truly understand the Bones' motives, you have to know where they came from. As we discussed last week, there's some debate about why founder William H. Russell started the Secret Society. Some allege that it started as a study group to influence academic life at Yale. Others say that the club was a way for Russell and his friends to thumb their noses at the administration. 
But Dr. Sutton and others believed that the Skull and Bone Society was not actually of William H. Russell's design. Instead, it's a sister chapter of an already existing group, and it was founded as an American base for a larger goal of global power. The year before he founded Skull and Bones at Yale, Russell studied abroad in Germany. Sutton believes that during that time, Russell was exposed to a German secret society, which were fairly common at the time. He possibly adopted their ideas and methodology and agreed to export them back to America. Members themselves admit that the name Skull and Bones is inspired by two German phrases, as we covered last week. And one of the club's ritual songs, recited at the close of every Skull and Bones gathering, is set to the tune of the German national anthem. But why does it matter if the group is a sister chapter to a German club? According to Dr. Sutton, in addition to songs and mottos, the Bonesmen adopted the Germans' philosophy of Hegelianism. In extremely simplified terms, Hegelianism is anti-individual. Instead, practitioners believe in surrendering to the collective, to a higher power, to God. To give an abstract example, while individual words have meaning, when they're used together in a sentence, they have greater meaning and power even more as a paragraph, as a book, as a library. When applied to politics, God becomes the state. Like God, its power should be absolute and it requires complete obedience. Dr. Sutton summarized, the state is supreme and conflict is used to bring about the ideal society. Individuals find freedom in obedience to the rulers. If the Skull and Bone Society is truly a Hegelian organization, the implications of its vast reach into the halls of power suddenly becomes a lot more threatening. Each Bonesman believes in strict obedience to the leaders of their group and the goals of the organization, and believes that obedience to the state should be the goal of society. So who's the leader? Who decides the goals? After studying the roster lists of over 170 classes of Bonesmen, Dr. Sutton believes that there are 15 to 20 core families running the group, which he calls the Order. They're some of the oldest, wealthiest dynasties in America's history. Many of them can trace their lineage back to the colonies. Families like the Lords, the Phelps, the Bundys, the Whitneys, the Wadsworths, and the Tafts. Along the way, they've picked up some new money families, the Rockefellers, the Harrimans, the Pillsburys, the Paynes, the Sloans, and the Davisons. Together, they dominate the government, industry, finance, education, media, and more. Under Dr. Sutton's theory, the same small group of wealthy elites has maneuvered throughout history to influence and control the state. If true, then 2004 was truly peak Hegelianism for the skull and bones. Whether it was George W. Bush or John Kerry who was elected president of the United States, the order won. If the Skull and Bone Society did model their philosophy on German Hegelianism, they wouldn't be the first well-known group to do so. It also greatly influenced Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. 
And there are a number of links between prominent bonesmen and Nazi Germany. The Guardian reported findings from the U.S. National Archives confirming that as early as 1924, bonesmen funneled money to German businesses that funded Hitler's cause, thus aiding his rise to power. Not only did bonesmen support Nazi supporters financially, but many believe they also supported Hitler's views on eugenics and the master race. Based on these notions, one could argue that, while the Skull and Bone Society poses as a simple college fraternity, it might actually have roots as a white supremacy group grappling for global domination. Dr. Anthony Sutton argued that when the Skull and Bone Society was founded in 1832, it adopted the German philosophy of Hegelianism as its guiding principle. With this in mind, the group has angled to dominate politics and industry to bring about the Hegelian ideal of an absolute state in America. Another notable group that subscribed to Hegelianism was the Nazi Party. Hegelianism believes that conflict is necessary to bring change. The struggle between a thesis and an antithesis will synthesize into a better result. One of the simplest ways to create opposition is to single out an other and create an us-versus-them mindset. For Bonesmen, it's in-group versus out-group. For the Nazis, it was the superior Aryan race versus the inferior lesser races. In the second case, the result of the synthesis would be a unified Europe led by the absolute German state, the Hegelian ideal. Ostensibly feeling connected by their like-minded cause, several Bonesmen pledged monetary support to some of Adolf Hitler's financial backers in the early 20th century. One of the more notable names on the Skull and Bones roster is W. Averill Harriman. He was truly a jack-of-all-trades, a business tycoon, a venture capitalist, a diplomat, and a politician. He served under four presidents, earning the descriptor of super diplomat. He was also on the board of directors of at least three companies while investing in several more. Perhaps his most well-known business was the one that bore his name, Brown Brothers Harriman. Today, it's one of the oldest and largest wealth management companies in the U.S. And since its inception, the firm has employed legions of bonesmen, Prescott Bush, Knight Woolley, Robert A. Lovett, and more. By 1972, nine of the 27 managing partners at Brown Brother Harriman were bonesmen. But this wasn't the only financial institution managed by Skull and Bones. Harriman also established an offshoot bank around 1924 called the Union Banking Corporation. He formed it in partnership with Bank for Handel and Scapefart, owned by the Thiessen family. Fritz Thiessen was a German businessman and industrialist. He was also one of Adolf Hitler's largest financial supporters. His autobiography is titled, I Paid Hitler. Through the banking partnership, interested Americans could deposit money into a Union Banking Corporation account, transfer it first to the Bank for Handel, then to the August Thiessen Bank in Berlin, where it was funneled to the Nazi party. Journalists Ben Aris and Duncan Campbell wrote, by the late 1930s, Brown Brothers Harriman and UBC had bought and shipped millions of dollars of gold, 
fuel, steel, coal, and U.S. Treasury bonds to Germany, both feeding and financing Hitler's buildup to war. We know this occurred because eventually the U.S. government caught wind of these exchanges. In 1942, they seized UBC under a vesting order, accusing the bank of trading with the enemy. And these suspicions were confirmed when investigators examined the UBC's records. They found an account in Fritz Thiessen's name holding $3 million, roughly $16.2 million today. But Harriman and his Bonesmen investors weren't just financially supporting the Nazis. They were also profiting off their war crimes. Brown Brothers Harriman was a major investor in a steel manufacturing company in Poland called the Consolidated Silesian Steel Company, or CSSC. When Germany invaded Poland, they seized most of the factories and methods of industry. However, the American investors in CSSC and other Polish factories continued to receive dividends. Hitler was hoping to persuade the U.S. to remain neutral in World War II by allowing them to benefit from the Third Reich's advancement. Brown Brothers Harriman appeared more than happy to do so. But the CSSC plant, like many factories in Poland at the time, was staffed with slave labor sourced from various incarceration camps, including Auschwitz. More unsettling, there's evidence to suggest that American investors were aware of the labor source because they fought to protect it. In January of 1944, FDR issued an executive order to take all measures to rescue European Jews. As part of this, he wanted to destroy the various concentration camps and their connecting railway lines through airstrikes. But the order was ignored after a group of American business executives, led by bonesman Prescott Bush, who pressured the government not to bomb the camps. It's been suggested that they wanted to protect their labor source to preserve their revenue stream. However, there's also another possibility beyond ruthless business acumen. Some believe another reason might be that the Bonesmen wanted the camps to remain open because they supported the genocide being carried out there. Because in addition to sharing Hitler's political views on Hegelianism, several members of the Skull and Bone Society shared the Nazis' views on racial purity. Dr. Sutton suggests that the secret society is actually a eugenics tool to preserve the integrity of elite bloodlines. One of the most pervasive rumors about the Skull and Bones initiation ritual is that new members are forced to masturbate in a coffin to be reborn as a bonesman. They're also compelled to reveal their entire sexual histories to their brothers. The jury is out on the first part. There's no hard evidence that ejaculation is a part of the skull and bones history, but there's overwhelming confirmation that new bonesmen are forced to reveal their sexual past. It's a process called connubial bliss. In the weekly meetings following initiation, one by one, each new member takes his turn confessing his complete sexual history. In Alexandra Robbins' book, The Secrets of the Tomb, the bonesmen she talked to insisted that it wasn't as ribald as one might assume. While the first 20 minutes might feel like locker room talk, revealing details of past conquests, Eventually, it evolves into a larger conversation about relationships and becomes a bonding experience. One alumni explained, 
There was nothing perverse or surreal or prurient, just a kind of open exchange. It's like TV's Ricky Lake. Now there's a national mania for purging thoughts at large. This is a way of doing it in a very private, non-sensationalist way that benefits the people who are listening and the people who are telling. But it's hard to imagine the original members of the Skull and Bones Society waxing poetic about lost loves or examining their behavior in relationships to determine why they push people away. Instead, connubial bliss might have been as surface as it seems. They wanted to know who was an acceptable specimen to keep the bloodlines pure. Journalist Ron Rosenbaum echoed this explanation in his article, The Last Secrets of the Skull and Bones writing, the sharing of birth control and self-control methods minimize the chance of a good man and future steward of the ruling class being trapped into marriage by a fortune hunter or a working class girl. And beyond keeping the core families consolidated, intermarrying again and again, Bonesmen have also supported applying eugenics to the masses. Dozens of them were members of the American Eugenics Society. In 1922, the Society opened a headquarters in New Haven, next door to Yale's campus. They supposedly felt it was important to be closely connected to an institution of higher learning to encourage men of science to pass on their superior genes. The group's founder, Bonesman Averill Harriman's mother, Mary Williamson Averill Harriman. Mary Harriman, Averill Harriman's mother, was also an avid supporter of the Eugenics Records Office, or ERO. This was a research lab established by the Carnegie Institution of Washington Station for Experimental Evolution. Mary provided the majority of their funding for several decades. With her money, the ERO gathered data via surveys, asking questions about a person's family history, education levels, and economic background. As P.K. Wilson outlined in their paper on the ERO, data was organized on family pedigree charts that contained information about the incidence of particular traits thought to be hereditarily linked. Special talents in music, math, sports, or invention were also recorded, as were subjective assessments of mental ability. The charts also recorded undesirable traits that had no genealogical relation whatsoever, such as the incidence of multiple births and diseases like tuberculosis and syphilis. Using the data collected by the ERO, the Eugenic Society lobbied for forced sterilization legislation. In 1924, several states passed a version of the ERO's Model Eugenical Sterilization Law. It stated, whenever the superintendent shall be of opinion that it is for the best interests of society that any inmate of the institution under his care should be sexually sterilized, such superintendent is hereby authorized to perform the operation of sterilization on any such patient afflicted with hereditary forms of insanity that are recurrent, idiocy, imbecility, feeble-mindedness, or epilepsy. But the law was applied on a case-by-case, state-by-state basis. This wasn't good enough for the Eugenic Society. They needed approval at a federal level. They got their chance in 1927. The Supreme Court upheld forced sterilization in the feeble-minded in Buck versus Bell. The Chief Justice on the bench, Bonesman William H. Taft. 
Forced sterilization laws were adopted by 24 states in the first half of the 20th century. It's estimated that roughly 60,000 people were forcibly sterilized under the statutes laid out by the ERO. A large number of those treated were immigrants. One of the qualifications for sterilization, feeble-mindedness, was determined by an IQ exam, the Stanford Binet test. But the test was only given in English, no matter what language the person taking it spoke. In addition, several of the questions used idioms that only native English speakers would really understand. Therefore, it skewed the results, and over 85% of the Russian, Jewish, Polish, Mexican, and Italian immigrants tested fell in the moron-to-imbecile range. With that rating, they were legally eligible for forced sterilization if they found themselves institutionalized for any reason. The high point of this Bonesman Eugenics connection was the Third International Congress of Eugenics, held in 1932. Several Skull and Bones families were sponsors of the event. Now three years into the Great Depression, rampant unemployment made the idea of population control suddenly mainstream. With so many people going hungry, struggling to make ends meet, maybe there really were just too many people. But in true Hegelian style, the Eugenic Society followed a principle of us versus them those worthy of procreating, and those unworthy. In his keynote address at Congress, Henry Fairfield Osborne lamented, in nature, these less fitted individuals would gradually disappear, but in civilization, we are keeping them in the community in the hopes that in brighter days, they may all find employment. This is only another instance of humane civilization going directly against the order of nature and encouraging the survival of the unfittest. And who decided someone's fitness? Why, the state, of course. With the help of the folks at the Bonesmen Run Eugenics Records Office. Also present at the 1932 conference was Dr. Ernst Rudin, a Nazi and co-founder of the German Society for Racial Hygiene. The next year, in the summer of 1933, Rudin co-authored the Law for the Prevention of Genetically Diseased Offspring. It was based heavily on the 1924 ERO-sponsored sterilization law and targeted the mentally ill, the so-called feeble-minded, the physically handicapped, and those suffering from addiction. But unlike the American law, which was only applied to the institutionalized, Rudin's law was enforced in the general population. Genetic health courts were created to rule on various cases and determine if someone was fit to propagate. From 1933 to 1945, at least 200 genetic health courts were established, and an estimated 400,000 people were forcibly sterilized. After World War II, once the horrors of the Holocaust were exposed, the concept of eugenics fell out of favor, but it didn't disappear entirely, and members of the Skull and Bones didn't completely sever their ties. 
1952, John D. Rockefeller III and Frederick Osborne, both of their families with ties to Skull and Bones, and both members of the American Eugenics Society, founded the Population Council. The Council is a nonprofit organization that focuses on contraceptive education, specifically in developing non white countries. They've held patents for several IUD birth control devices, including the Copper T IUD, Norplant, and Mirena. Under the guise of family planning, they offered to implant IUDs in women who otherwise wouldn't have access to reliable birth control. But this means that, in effect, the council advocates for voluntary sterilization, primarily in people of color. In 1999, Chicago implemented a voluntary cash for sterilization program called CRAC, or Children Requiring a Caring Community. For $200, drug addicts submitted to either tubal ligation, vasectomy, or a long-term contraceptive implant. Chicago used the Population Council's device, Norplant. Bonesmen have brought population control ideology directly into the government as well. In 1970, fellow Bonesmen and Congressman George H.W. Bush and Robert Taft Jr. served on the Task Force on Earth Resources and Population. They labeled overpopulation as the number one threat to America. They filed a report about the issue on July 8th, stating, sociologists believe that this density of population has been a prime cause for increased automobile traffic deaths, drug addiction, broken marriage, alcoholism, crime, homosexuality, suicides, venereal disease, and heart attacks as a result of the social stresses that man encounters in his struggle to exist in such a congested environment. The sociologist they referred to was Dr. William Shockley, a Nobel Prize winner and eugenics advocate. Similar to Chicago's crack initiative, Shockley recommended paid voluntary sterilization. Anyone with an IQ below 100 should be given a lump sum if they agreed to be sterilized. According to journalist Edward J. Boyer, under Shockley's proposal, Non-taxpayers with an IQ below 100 would have been paid $1,000 for each of their IQ points under 100 if they agreed to be sterilized. Such an intervention in the gene pool was necessary, he argued, to curb what he called dysgenics, or overbreeding among the genetically disadvantaged. It's also worth noting that Shockley was undoubtedly racist. He said on multiple occasions, in multiple ways, that black people are genetically and intellectually inferior to white people. In addition, both Shockley and Frederick Osborne of the Population Council have ties to the Pioneer Fund. The Southern Poverty Law Center classifies the Pioneer Fund as a hate group due to their racist and white supremacist nature. But what does all this mean for the Skull and Bone Society? Well, if you believe that they're in the process of pushing a global agenda, then it's not just about eliminating undesirables at the bottom of the spectrum. It's also about making sure that the core maintains their roles of influence at the top. Dr. Anthony Sutton argued in his book, America's Secret Establishment, that Bonesmen are actively engaged in implementing a Hegelian New World Order. 
as we said earlier, when applied to politics, a Hegelian state is absolute and supreme. So, with this principle, what do the Bonesmen want? Well, put simply, to rule the world. Coming up, exploring the Skull and Bones speculated attempts at world domination. Now, back to the story. To understand the true goals of the Skull and Bone Society, Dr. Anthony Sutton argues that we have to look past ideas like left and right or Republican and Democrat. There are no sides in Hegelian politics. There is only the state, absolute and supreme. Linked by this common philosophy, the Bonesmen allegedly supported another Hegelian group in the early 20th century, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. But another German thinker was also inspired by Hegel, Karl Marx. He also believed in obedience to an absolute state, but one that was in service of the people. In the Marxist version of us versus them, it's capitalist versus communist. And as a Hegelian organization, the Bolsheviks and Soviet Russia enjoyed the same financial support that Bonesman institution Brown Brothers Harriman offered to the Third Reich. Through the Ruskom Bank, investors funneled money to the fledgling communist nation. Eventually, Avril Harriman served as the U.S. ambassador to Russia. On the surface, this support appears completely illogical. Why would Brown Brothers Harriman, quite literally the embodiment of capitalism, help the Bolsheviks establish their anti-capitalist republic? Well, as we said earlier, a key principle of Hegelianism is that conflict produces change, and whoever's in control of that conflict will profit the most. By financially backing both the Nazis and the Soviets, the investing bonesmen nudged Europe in the direction of World War II. As we mentioned, Hegelianism employs a concept of thesis versus antithesis. It's through the conflict of these two opposing ideas that a new, better solution synthesizes. Dr. Sutton labeled Soviet Russia as the thesis, Nazi Germany as the antithesis, and World War II as conflict. The synthesis that emerged was the United Nations, the first step towards establishing a world governing body and a global state. Since its inception, two bonesmen have served as the UN ambassador, James Jeremiah Wadsworth and George H.W. Bush. Harriman's next Hegelian experiment was the Cold War. In this case, the opposing forces were Harriman's two different relationships with Russia. The thesis was his government role as an ambassador. In this position, he acted as a conduit between Stalin and the different presidents that he served under, giving them insight into the foreign leader's mindset and helping them to shape their policies accordingly. Harriman reported to Presidents FDR and Truman that he believed the Soviets posed a significant threat to America and democracy. Therefore, we had to beef up our defenses accordingly. Harriman is credited with setting the table for the Cold War. 
So the antithesis to this was his business role as an investor in Russia. As we know now, the Soviet communist economy wasn't nearly as threatening as it was made out to be. It couldn't support massive industry. Stalin himself admitted that two-thirds of the factories in the Soviet Union were backed by American financiers, many of them with ties to Brown Brothers Harriman. This means that Harriman was advancing two opposing agendas both funding the continued advancement of Russia, as well as actively warning the U.S. about their ever-growing power. Thesis versus antithesis. But what was the goal? After the conflict of the Cold War, America synthesized as the dominant global superpower. Now, the U.S. government itself holds more global power than an entity like the U.N. The American state practically represents the global state. Any action the U.S. government takes will have ripples on a global scale. And as we've established, the Bonesmen spent the better part of the 20th century completely infiltrating every piece of the American governing body. With the close of the Cold War and the repositioning of America on the world stage, they were primed to implement their new world order. And then, in 1988, Bonesman George H.W. Bush was elected president. Twelve years after that, his son took over the White House. Between the two men, America engaged in four foreign wars. Operation Desert Storm, Operation Desert Shield, Operation Enduring Freedom, and Operation Iraqi Freedom. Under George W. Bush, the U.S. government enacted the Patriot Act. Similarly to the ERO sterilization law, it disproportionately impacts immigrants, non-Christians, and people of color. And once again, it's all backed by Hegelianism, us versus them, Americans versus the terrorists. And the state will tell you exactly who the terrorists are. In the time following both Bush administrations, the Skull and Bone Society has received more press attention and become more well-known by the public. Therefore, it's lost some of the power that anonymity affords. When Dr. Sutton published America's Secret Establishment, he included the roster lists of every member inducted in Skull and Bones from 1832 to 2004. In the age of the internet, someone's bonesman status is now basically public knowledge. Therefore, the true power players of the Skull and Bone Society have likely branched out into new anonymous groups to better hide their goals. There are three key organizations that overlap with the Skull and Bones membership. The Council on Foreign Relations, the Bilderberg Group, and the Bohemian Club. The Council on Foreign Relations, or CFR, is not a secret society. They provide their membership lists to the public. However, the sheer number of Skull and Bones members who are also in the CFR begs the question, are they steering the group from the inside? The Bilderberg Group initially made its membership public, but has since concealed their lists. Much like the Skull and Bones, members come from both sides of the aisle, lending itself to the idea that this is another group influenced by Hegelianism. It's not about left or right, it's just about power. The Bohemian Club is the most secretive of the three. Every year, they hold a meeting for all club members at a private location known as Bohemian Grove. 
Unlike the CFR and the Bilderbergs, which are strictly business-styled meetings, the Bohemian Club includes some of the pageantry of a secret society. Most notably, they begin their yearly retreats with a bonfire ceremony called the Cremation of Care. By diversifying into these other anonymous organizations, the Bonesmen are able to retain their power. Because as we've seen, it's what goes on behind the scenes that has the most impact. Today, the Skull and Bone Society functions as most collegiate fraternities do. In the 1990s, they expanded their membership requirements to allow women to join the Bonesmen ranks. With so many of their secrets revealed, alumni lament that the Bonesmen have lost much of their prestige and aura. But this might be another example of members deliberately feeding misinformation. After all, no one really knows what goes on in the tomb. They could be robbing graves. They could be wrestling naked in the mud. Or they could be plotting to rule us all. Thanks again for tuning into Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back next time to explore another secret society, the Bilderberg Group. For more information on the skull and bones, amongst the many sources we used, we found Alexandra Robbins' book, The Secrets of the Tomb, extremely helpful to our research. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joel Stein. This episode was written by Abigail Cannon, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.